0: Here you will find relaxation and your heart's delight. Listen away, for we are your ray of sunshine.
1: This is David Barsamyan, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW. FM in Calgary.
0: The majority of U.S. Army bases on the continent were initially outposts for wars against Indigenous nations. Fort Snelling, Hayes, Kearney, Leavenworth, Sill, and Riley, all named after U.S. Army officers who commanded genocidal wars. For most of the period from the U.S. War of Independence to 1890s, the sole function of the U.S. military was to kill, round up refugees, relocate and confine Native Americans and appropriate their land and resources to replace with Anglo-American settlers.
1: That's Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz on an indigenous people's history. The history of the United States is one of settler colonialism. The state was established on the basis of white male supremacy, slavery, land theft, and genocide. From sea to shining sea, the native nations were decimated and dispossessed. The survivors herded into concentration camps. It was God's will. The genocidal policy reached its peak under President Andrew Jackson. Its ruthlessness was best articulated by Army General Thomas Jessup, who in 1836 wrote, The country can be rid of them only by exterminating them. Native people are still here. Today, there is growing support for their movements, such as the campaign to abolish Columbus Day and replace it with Indigenous Peoples Day. The Dakota Access Pipeline resistance, led by the Standing Rock Sioux, was joined by many non-Native allies. The action, though unsuccessful, captured the imagination of people everywhere. The struggle for Indigenous rights continues. Our guest today is Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. She's been active in the indigenous movement for more than four decades and is known for her commitment to social justice issues. She's the author of An Indigenous People's History of the United States, winner of the American Book Award. She spoke in Santa Fe, New Mexico, at an event organized by the Lennon Foundation. And now, Roxanne
0: Dunbar-Ortiz. I want to acknowledge that we are present on the unceded traditional territory, the Tewa people's towns and farms, which were brutally invaded and occupied. The people's lives disrupted and displaced in 1607, when the Spanish established their first proclaimed center of dominance in this area. This is also the central site of perhaps the most important liberation movement and revolution in North America, if not the world. This was the 1680 All Indian Pueblo Revolution, which occurred a century before the future and present colonizer, the United States of America, even existed. That revolutionary spirit is the primary means by which the indigenous peoples of New Mexico and actually the whole Southwest, have continued through the past three centuries. And they are the future of this place. I want to say a few words about that 12-year revolution of the 1680s. As a doctoral student in history at UCLA in 1974, I wrote my dissertation on the history of land tenure in New Mexico, from pre-colonial times to the present which became my book, Roots of Resistance, and the template for my research and writing on settler colonialism and its inseparable offspring, Attempted Genocide. So I owe much to um, the people and the place um, that we are in. The Pueblo Revolution brought the Spanish colony to a quick end in 1680, some years, at least 20, perhaps much longer, of organization produced a unified offensive on the part of all but a few southern pueblos. Remember, there were dozens and dozens of pueblos then, not not 19 or 21. Uh, there were 90 at first. They were reduced in population and numbers uh, during Spanish colonization. But this unified offensive uh, Offensive of the pueblos included the Hopi, of course, uh, and the Zuni to the west, as well as the Apache, Navajo, and Ute allies. Many low in the Spanish caste hierarchy, African, mestizo, and indigenous servants living in the servant sector of the Santa Fe Barrio del Anaco joined the revolt. The entire population of settlers, priests, and military were forced into exile to El Paso, where they planned a return, which took place again violently in 1692. And as you know, this is called La Entrada, but it was much more than an entrance And it is officially celebrated right here in Santa Fe, and there are monuments and plaques that present the people who conquered, once again, as uh, heroes, as heroic. So why did the Spanish colonizers believe they had the right to appropriate the lands of peoples over 5,000 miles and across a great ocean from Spain? Indeed, how did the British, first as colonizers along the Atlantic shore, then as Anglo-Americans forming their own empire from sea to shining sea? And why is this a continuing current event and not just history? This brings me to the doctrine of discovery. In 1982, the government of Spain and the Holy See, that's the Vatican, which is a non-voting state member of the United Nations. So that's a state that's one square mile with no population. Um, So if you wonder why a native nation can be a member of the United Nations, just look at the Vatican. Why not? (laughs) So... Spain and the Holy See proposed to the United Nations General Assembly that the year in 1992 be celebrated in the United Nations as an encounter, an encuentro between Europe and the indigenous peoples of the Americas, a commemoration that would honor Europeans for having brought the gifts of civilization and Christianity to the peoples of the Western Hemisphere. I was sitting in the non-governmental gallery where had just started our work at the UN five years before that and still learning. Uh, We didn't know much about headquarters. We've been doing it at the UN uh, Human Rights Center in Geneva, Switzerland. So I was trying to monitor these meetings to see how things worked. And so I was just taking notes about tedious parliamentary disputes and I was almost uh, nodding off. When I was jolted out of my boredom, I felt panicked, helpless to do anything that wouldn't get me ousted from UN headquarters permanently. But then, after a few minutes of so the Norway and Irish delegates teasing each other that their own ancestors had actually been the first to discover North America, with other European and North American diplomats heartily laughing, all of the African diplomats scattered around the meeting room, seated in alphabetical order by their nation's names, rose in unison. So in other words, of course, they're all black, African. And it was just amazing. I don't know how this was before uh, texting and the Internet. <laughs> um, or cell phones, I'm not sure how how they communicated, but they did in that five minutes or so. And they all rose up at one time and, and walked out. So the jesting and laughter stopped, and the befuddled Europeans and Euro-Americans looked around at each other in confusion. One sang into a live mic, Mike, What does Columbus have to do with Africa? What, indeed. A recess was declared. An hour later, the meeting reconvened, and the African group's chosen spokesperson delivered an impassioned statement condemning any proposal that would celebrate the onset of European colonialism, genocide, and the transatlantic slave trade, in the halls of the United Nations. Which was established, as they pointed out, for the purpose of decolonization. So the doctrine of discovery had reared its head in the wrong place. The resolution was dead, but it was not the end of efforts by Spain. And remember, this is not fascist Franco-Spain, this is Democratic Socialist Party-Spain, the Vatican and others in the West, particularly the Reagan-Bush administrations, to make the quincecentennial a cause for celebration. But it was a failed endeavor, ultimately, thanks to the powerful solidarity of the world's indigenous and oppressed peoples, along with growing European and Euro-American allies. So as I said, only five years before the incident in the U.N. General Assembly, the Indigenous Peoples of the Americas Conference at the United Nations, Geneva, Switzerland headquarters, had proposed that 1992 be designated as the United Nations Year of Mourning, for the onset of colonialism, African slavery, and attempted genocide of the indigenous peoples of the Americas. And that October 12th be designated as the UN International Day of the World's Indigenous Peoples. Although indigenous peoples won a designated United Nations Day, year, and even a decade, the compromise was to not... Designate the compromise with the European, U.S., and some Latin American, uh, still dictatorships, not to des- designate October 12th, rather August 9th as the U.N. Day of World's Indigenous Peoples, 1993, not 1992, as the U.N. Year for Indigenous Peoples, and 1994 to 2004 is the U.N. decade for indigenous peoples. Actually, those decades have been repeated. and We're now in the third uh, decade for the uh, world's indigenous peoples, the U.N. However, that year's Nobel Peace Prize was bestowed upon Guatemalan K'iche Mayan leader Rigoberta Menchu And it was announced in Oslo on October 12, 1992. (laughs) A decision that infuriated the Spanish government and the Vatican, who withdrew their ambassadors uh, for a time. And in uh, Rigoberta's speech at the uh, Nobel ceremony, accepting the prize, she accepted it not for herself, but on behalf of the world's indigenous peoples, and was subsequently appointed UN Honorary Ambassador for Indigenous Peoples, a position she holds to this day. So what is the doctrine of discovery? According to this medieval canon law, European Christian monarchies acquired title to the lands they discovered, and indigenous inhabitants lost their natural right to that land after Christian Europeans had arrived and claimed it. Under this legalistic cover for theft, European and Euro-American wars of conquest and settler colonialism in the Western Hemisphere devastated indigenous nations and communities, ripping their territories away from them and transforming the land into private property, or real estate, along with another form of private property, enslaved African bodies. In the United States, most of that land ended up in the hands of land speculators, who were also slavers and agribusiness operators, called plantations, such as most of the U.S. founding fathers, so-called, and most of the U.S. presidents and other government and military officials up to the Civil War. Arcane as it may seem, the doctrine of discovery remains the basis for U.S. federal laws still in effect that control indigenous peoples' lives and destinies, maintaining a regimen of suffocating settler colonialism under the color of law. So from the mid-15th century to the mid-20th century, most of the non-European world was colonized under the doctrine of discovery. This is the first principle of international law that Christian European monarchies promulgated to legitimize the investigating, mapping, and claiming lands belonging to non-Christian peoples outside of Europe. It originated in a papal bull issued in 1455 that permitted the Portuguese monarchy to seize West Africa for slave raiding. Following Columbus's infamous exploratory voyage in 1492, sponsored by the king and queen of the infant Spanish state, another papal bull extended similar permission to Spain Disputes between the Portuguese and Spanish monarchies led to the papal-initiated Treaty of Tordesillas in 1494, which, besides dividing the globe equally between the two Iberian empires, clarified that only non-Christian lands fell under the Discovery Doctrine. So this doctrine, on which all European states relied originated with the arbitrary and unilateral establishment of the Iberian monarchy's exclusive rights under Christian canon law to colonize foreign peoples. And this right was later seized and absorbed, usually explicitly, if not by common law, by Protestant Christian European monarchical colonizing projects as well. But not only monarchies, Following the revolution that overthrew the monarchy, uh, the French Republic applied the Doctrine of Discovery to legalize its 19th and 20th century settler-colonialist projects in North Africa, Southeast Asia, and the South Pacific, as did the anti-monarchy independent United States when it continued the settler-colonial project of North America. Begun but then halted by the British monarchy in 1754. Indeed, the populist settler colonialism of those republics, as well as the late Spanish settler colonies, uh, Argentina, Uruguay, Paraguay, and Chile, when they won independence and became republics, proved to be the most insidious, including genocidal policies which in terms of the 1948 Genocide Convention includes forcibly removing children from the group, forcibly preventing births within the group, creating conditions of life that make the group's continued existence impossible, destroying the group's means of subsistence, forced removals or ethnic cleansing, and other acts such as killing that constitute genocide in international law. Indicating the intentions of the newly independent United States, in 1792, Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson asserted that the doctrine of discovery developed by European states was international law, applicable to the new U.S. government as well. Codifying the doctrine of discovery as domestic law in 1823, the U.S. Supreme Court issued the, a decision, actually, a, a collection of decisions, three decisions concerning the Cherokee Nation in Georgia. Writing for the majority, Chief Justice John Marshall held that the doctrine of discovery had been an established principle of European law and of English law in effect in British North American colonies and was also the law of the United States. The court defined the exclusive property rights that a European country acquired by dint of discovery. Quote Marshall writing, Discovery gave title to the United States government by whose subjects or by whose authority it was made against all other European governments which title might be consummated by possession? Therefore, European and Euro American discoverers had gained real property rights in the lands of indigenous peoples by merely planting a flag. Of course, they were and still are met with resistance by the peoples whose land they claim. The court held that the indigenous rights to complete sovereignty. And quote, as independent nations were necessarily diminished. Indigenous peoples could continue to live on the land by grace of the federal government, but title resided with the United States Republic. And of course, this came to be called trust, the trust relationship or the trust doctrine, which still exists. Soon it turned out that the indigenous people in question who brought the cases to the Supreme Court, the Cherokee Nation in the state of Georgia, were not allowed to remain in their ancestral territory. And Cherokee citizens were forced march 1500 miles on foot through an abnormally cold winter during which half their number died of exposure, starvation and disease what the Cherokee people call to this day the Trail of Tears. Already the Muskogee peoples had been deported from Alabama and Mississippi, and by 1850, all the other indigenous peoples east of the Mississippi had been forcibly relocated to Indian territory west of the Mississippi, uh, which comprised what is now Oklahoma, all of Oklahoma, part of Kansas and Arkansas. Parallel to and enabled by this ethnic cleansing was the rise of the Cotton Kingdom in the Mississippi Valley and the industrial forced breeding of enslaved Africans in the older slaver states. The foundation and birth of United States capitalism, burrowed into and destroying indigenous sacred land and African sacred bodies, as exchange commodities and the source of wealth that built the richest nation, state, and largest and deadliest military in human history, the United States of America. So the doctrine of discovery, at least in the United States, is so taken for granted that very few people even know it exists as a fundamental element of the United States law. Although we do know that the U.S. purports to be a nation of laws, we don't iterate this particular one in law schools <laughs> or in conversation. The doctrine of discovery is rarely mentioned in any historical or legal texts, although the Marshall Court Cherokee decisions are uh, regularly uh, the introduction to constitute U.S. constitutional law uh, after Marbury. <laughs> Yet the doctrine of discover, discovery is the legal basis upon which the United States government controls indigenous nations whose territories it claims under a continuing colonial system. The doctrine of discovery was once again invoked and validated in the 2005 U.S. Supreme Court case City of Sherrill versus Oneida Nation of Indians, in which the 1820s U.S. Supreme Court decisions were cited as precedent for denying the Oneida Nation the land, uh, land claim in this case. Significantly, it was a unanimous decision with the most liberal judge on the bench, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, writing the decision. The United Nations 2007 Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples specifically repudiates the doctrine of discovery, as has the World Court in the case of the Western Sahara. This is actually a prerequisite uh, in the United States because it's codified in, um, in, in law It's more common law in Latin America. Um, This is a first step toward indigenous decolonization. Three years ago, I published a history of the United States titled An Indigenous People's History of the United States, which has found a wide audience and has been adopted in many public and private middle and uh, and high schools, as well as colleges and universities and countless community and church reading groups The most frequent question readers ask after reading this book is, why hasn't it been written before? Why hasn't this book been written before? I'm really flattered by that question because it's the one I ask about texts that deeply move me. At the same time that the information or argument or story is new to me and seems like a revelation, it also seems that it it, it was already hidden in the recesses of my brain our heart, a truth, actually also embedded in our subconsciousness. But why hasn't this book been written before? We believe we don't suffer academic censorship in the United States, but we do. Rather than be mandated by the government, professional historians self-censor in response to institutionalized policing of the parameters of what's acceptable and what will be marginalized. A broad consensus reached by the US history profession's elite, along with school textbook standards made by states, namely uh, in the last 20, 30 years, Texas, plus the graduate history student's desire to complete the doctorate as easily as possible and start a successful career and then to get tenure. The civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s, and uh, along with the powerful native Chicano, Puerto Rican, anti-war, cultural, uh, countercultural, women's liberation, and gay, lesbian, and trans movements, broke down the existing consensus and created a window of opportunity that institutionalized revisions through the bottom-up creation of black, native, Chicano, and gender studies. But that devolved into a multicultural, a kind of multiculturalism supporting the narrative of diversity and contributions to the greatness of the United States. In achieving a new consensus, the new narrative had, had to ignore native issues of sovereignty and territorial rights and treaties, Rather, twisting the inclusion of indigeneity as a racial discrimination question rather than a question of sovereign nations living under settler colonialism. One of my favorite writers, um, late writers, William Burroughs, narrator, in his 1984 novel, which I highly recommend, The Place of Dead Roads, observes that, quote, People are not bribed to shut up about what they know. They're bribed not to find out. This is particularly true in the writing of U.S. history, my profession. It's not a free speech issue, but one of asking questions that challenge the core of the scripted narrative. Historians are validated to the extent that they remain guardians of the United States' origin narrative with various tweaks to adjust to demands of the excluded to prevent revolutions. Even those flawed advances are currently in retreat. And U.S. gun violence and endless wars are endemic. Various polls show that even the educated general public doesn't know basic facts about the structure of the U.S. government the Constitution, the rights of states, and the division of powers. Yet there is a widespread acceptance of the greatness and goodness of the United States, along with the extreme mist of government, except for the military.
1: You're listening to Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz on an Indigenous People's History. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For CDs of this program and her book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, just call us at one 800 444 Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Our website, alternativeradio.org. A recent tiny
0: Associated Press story provided polling information of U.S. American public regarding their confidence in federal government institutions, reporting only 6% have confidence in Congress. 14% of people said they have confidence in the executive branch, which includes the president and all of the cabinet agencies. 24% say they have confidence in the Supreme Court. However, 84% have confidence in the military. The military is the only unifying government institution, the only one trusted. So we have to understand where that military has come from and what it is. Why is there so little information, analysis, or curiosity in the origins and development of the U.S. military? In history and political science texts, doesn't exist. And teaching at any grade level, graduate school, the military history field, small as it is, is usually made up of warmongers and former military people and people who certainly never write about what actually happened to form that military the military isn't, isn't even presented as a branch of government as we know there are only three branches of government rather is placed under the formally civilian elected president and commander-in-chief of, of the armed forces this is meant to scare you because trump isn't just president he's the commander-in-chief of the armed forces and as he said i heard him on tv tonight say that he can do anything he wants because he's that. However, from the earliest settlements in the 1600s to the adhesion of the 13 British colonies into an independent nation state and up to the present, the military has been the engine that drives U.S. nationalism, that is, patriotism. Yet generations have little knowledge of interaction with the military but the annals of military history reveal the architecture of its formation and function and dominance. Air Force officer and military historian John Grenier uh, gives, gives me hope that this hopefully is beginning to change, writes, for the first 200 years of our military heritage, Americans depended on arts of war that contemporary professional soldiers at that time supposedly abhorred, raising and destroying enemy villages and fields, read Native American, killing enemy women and children, raiding settlements for captives, intimidating and brutalizing enemy noncombatants, and assassinating enemy leaders. In the frontier wars between 1607 and 1814 Americans forged two elements unlimited war and irregular war into their first way of war so from this period Grenier argues emerged the problematic characteristics of the US way of war and thereby the characteristics of US civilization which few civilian historians or even anti-war activists acknowledge. Here's an example of the matrix that is deconstructed when a thread from the weave of consensus U.S. history is pulled and why the public discussion of Confederate fetishism provides a teachable moment. In July uh, 2015, the California State Legislature's Black Caucus, uh, I live in California, called on state authorities to change the name of the town of Fort Bragg, California, the site of a former military base 170 miles north of San Francisco, now just a town by that name, because it was named after Confederate General Braxton Bragg. Who knew there was a Confederate uh, general name on a on a an army base or a former army base, a town in California? In the course of his long military career, Bragg, an 1837 West Point graduate, was commander of the Confederate Army in the Civil War and owned a plantation and over 100 enslaved Africans. But that's only half the story of General Bragg's career, as it is of most of the Confederate as well as Union military commanders. The Black Caucus rightly raised the issue in the wake of the June 17, 2015 Charleston, South Carolina assassination of Senior Pastor and State Senator Clementa C. Pickney along with eight worshipers at the oldest historical black church in North America, Mother Emmanuel, which had been founded by Denmark Vesey, a formerly enslaved African, a carpenter by trade who purchased his freedom, and later organized a failed slave revolt for which he and a dozen other insurgents were hung. This event happened on that date of the hanging of Denmark Vesey. Shocked attention to the church massacre quickly turned to the continued presence of the Confederate flag on the South Carolina State House in Charleston, the assassin being a self identified white supremacist whose internet photos showed him toting the Confederate flag. A national debate ensued, not only about the proliferation of Confederate flags throughout the South and in white supremacist enclaves and at gun shows all over the country, but also public monuments and place names, particularly Army bases named after Confederate officers. There are, in fact, nine other U.S. military bases, in addition to Fort Bragg, that are named after Confederate officers most of them in the South. But Fort Bragg reveals a more complex history. Few in California knew that their state hosted a base, now a town named after a Confederate general. But the argument began immediately. Those who objected to changing the name, especially the people living in Fort Bragg, there aren't many there, but... <laughs> Uh, pointed out that General Bragg was a decorated U.S. Army officer in 1857, three years before the founding of the Confederacy, when Fort Bragg was built and named. That's certainly different from those bases in the South named after Confederates, all of which occurred in the post-Civil War Jim Crow segregationist era of the early and up to the mid-20th century. In Bragg's case, the naming honor recalled his actions as a captain serving under Major General Zachary Taylor in the United States Army and Marine invasion and occupation of Mexico City in 1847, forcing the Mexican Republic to cede the northern half of its territory. And the purpose of establishing Fort Bragg A decade later, in 1857, to carry out the confinement of indigenous Californians rounded up and forced into the newly established Mendocino Indian Reservation, where a military base was also established and named after Bragg, all before the Civil War. The Black Caucus statement asserted that it was inappropriate to honor an individual who committed treason against the United States in defense of slavery. Nearly everyone who has argued for the change of names of military bases has invoked treason. Yet all of the West Point graduate officers who led the Confederacy, after whom the bases are named, has been honorably recognized for their feats in the invasion and brutal counterinsurgency over a two-year period of Mexico, occupying and terrorizing the civilian population in Mexico City until the government officials, with guns at their heads, signed a treaty of session, including Robert E. Lee and several others who served and led the U.S. US war against the Seminole Nation in Florida. There were three U.S. wars against the Seminole Nation over the period of 1816 to 1858, all of them counterinsurgent, irregular wars, and all led by West Point graduates, who then, uh, in the later years, became either Union or Confederate soldiers. But it seems it would have been appropriate had these officers not chosen the Confederate side and stayed in the U.S. Army to slaughter Native Americans during and after the Civil War, like nearly every military officer of the Union Army. Sherman, Fremont, Grant, Custer, to name the most famous of the Union officers who later formed the leadership of the so-called Army of the West. In fact, the majority of U.S. Army bases on the continent were initially outposts for wars against indigenous nations, Fort Snelling, Hayes, Kearney, Leavenworth, Sill, and Riley, the latter the base of George Armstrong Custer's 7th Cavalry, now the 1st Infantry Division, all named after U.S. Army officers who commanded genocidal wars. For most of the period from the US War of Independence to 1890s, the sole function of the US military was to kill, round up refugees, relocate and confine Native Americans and appropriate their land and resources to replace with Anglo-American settlers, and sometimes from other countries like Scandinavians. Particularly slave-owning planters involved in monocash production got most of that land, the army officers of both the Confederacy and the Union had made their careers in genocidal campaigns against Native nations and against the indigenous and mestizo peoples of Mexico, uh, which included where we are now, annexing half its territory and including three major declared wars against the Seminole Nation before the Civil War. Both Union and Confederate armies posted regiments west of the Mississippi to invade territories of the Dakota, Cheyenne, Navajo, Apache, and Comanche nations, among others. Wars against the Native peoples did not miss a beat during the Civil War, which saw the military rounding up and deporting the entire Navajo population that Kit Carson could round up to a desert concentration camp where one-third succumbed to starvation, exposure, and disease and the ethnic cleansing of the Dakota people in their traditional territory in Minnesota to be replaced by Scandinavian settlers. After the Civil War, when the U.S. Army was supposed to prioritize occupation of the defeated Confederate states, forcing a reconstruction in which liberated African Americans could become participating and leading citizens, the Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces, the President, kept shifting armed forces from the south to the west, where a 25-year total war was waged to destroy the Native nations in the northern plains, the Intermountain West, and the southwest. The United States is a thoroughly militarized culture, all the more dangerous because we don't know it. It's subliminal. And it has been since its bloody birth, the blood being mainly that of indigenous peoples in the path of the colonists' relentless expansion during that revolution, their Revolutionary War. We see the signs of militarism all around us and in the media. But as military historian John Grenier notes, the cultural aspect of militarization are not new. They have deep historical roots, reaching into the nation's racist settler past and continuing through unrelenting wars of conquest and ethnic cleansing over three centuries. Grenier writes, beyond its sheer military utility, Americans also found a use for the first way of war in the construction of American identity the enduring appeal of the romanticized myth of the settlement, in quotes, not calling it conquest, of the frontier, either by actual men like Robert Rogers or Daniel Boone or fictitious ones like Nathaniel Bumpo of James Fenimore Cooper's creation, last of the Mohegans. It all points to what D.H. Lawrence called the myth of the essential white American. U.S. nationalism, its national narrative and origin story is white nationalism. And any historical analysis or current social crisis cannot be comprehended without acknowledging U.S. settler colonialism and colonial violence, centering indigenous America historically and in the present. So I thank you.
1: That was Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, an indigenous people's history. I had a chance to ask her a few questions. Talk about the resistance at, at Standing Rock. What do you think happened there and its, its significance? It seems that some very significant uh, alliances were made, and uh, the notion of land and water stewards was injected into public discourse.
0: Yeah, you have to remember this is in a tradition of Standing Rock and the Lakota of resistance. It's a continuation. These things have been going on all this time. It's that this particular moment caught attention for various reasons but I think mainly you know the toxic atmosphere created by the Trump campaign that people looked at it especially people liberals and on the left and and anyone who was doing social justice work the churches and all as such a breath of fresh air there's something positive happening here people fighting for their lives and standing up and so it just became this amazing pilgrimage you might say But what was important is that for the first time in any kind of environmental thing, they always want Native people to be involved and be out front as the poster children for raising money for Bill McKibben's outfit and all these things. And, um, you know, the Indigenous Environmental Network, they're willing to, you know, have these collaboration. But this is the first time where the Native people were in charge. And it was on... Indian land and one of the most militant Native American reservations in the country, the Standing Rock Sioux. This is where Sitting Bull is buried. This is where really Wounded Knee, 1973. They first met at Standing Rock and the American Indian Movement formed the International Indian Treaty Council at Standing Rock. So Standing Rock has, it's also the place where the refugees from the Dakota Wars, you know, during the Civil War, the utter genocide of Lincoln administration against the Dakotas in Minnesota, they took refugee, refuge at Standing Rock. So these militant Dakotas, you know, it's it's a mixture of uh, basically resistors <laughs> and their families. Some people who didn't know anything about Native resistance thought it was the first time of anything, first time Native Americans have ever risen up on their own and gotten together. I mean, they have, you know, the National Council of American Indians, the All-Indian Pueblo Council. and They get together all the time, but this is all kind of subterranean to uh, the general public. So it really became a positive thing in the media. Uh, Alcatraz had pretty positive image, but Wounded Knee was attacked by the press. Uh, European press was very positive about the Wounded Knee. 1973. But Nixon, you know, really had uh, such control on the press when he was president. So it was a lot of negative. Uh, and still to this day, there's a lot of negative misinformation about Wounded Knee and the American Indian Movement. But these people, again, uh, women were very much in the leadership there. I remember one clip I saw on um, TV, I don't know if it was Democracy Now! or MSNBC was doing really good coverage but they put a microphone up Bill McKibben and he, he got all puffed up to do his talk and Tara Hurska this wonderful native lawyer a Coast Salish from the Northwest just gently took the microphone and you know they just took leadership and of course David Archambault who comes from a very militant historically militant family the Archambaults he was a young, you know, the young tribal chairman, limited by his role as the Indian Reorganization Act, uh, federal, uh, at least with his, you know, council, because the president or the chairman in these these uh, IRA governments do not have a lot of executive authority. They have to have the council, and the council is, you know, more conservative. at But it was amazing how courageous. He went beyond the usual bounds of what a tribal chairman can do and how all the tribal chairmen from all across the country came and set up camps there. So there was a whole diplomatic camp. My conversant at the um, land forum, Nick Estes, helped organize the diplomatic camps there, was kind of the main person organizing them. But and you saw pictures of all the flags. I'm sure you know the flags of different Native Nations and all. So it was amazing too that Veterans for Peace and other Vietnam War vets and other vets, Iraq vets against the war, um, Afghan vets, that they came to five thousand of them. They put out a call and they they had to stop it. They said no more. You know they had no idea that more than a few hundred would come. And Wesley Clark Jr. of course did this ceremony of um, dressing up like Custer and getting on his knees and apologizing to what were the old AIM people, Leonard Crowdog and and uh, Phyllis Young, and um, that was the most beautiful scene Um, and and very moving. And of course they were there in this terrible snowstorm, you know, and blinding storm. Uh, So. Is extraordinary. It has lasting effects. Uh, before you know, it got uh, police uh, brutality began and mercenaries and dogs and all that. It had from April to October as this uh, well-known but not so publicized, where people were making pilgrimages there. I know at least three different uh, teachers in Chicago that took their a summer inner-city program with, with young people, and it changed their lives, camping out there. And, and Nick uh, arranged for them, one of them, that I had recommended to be in the diplomatic camp. They all went completely self-sufficient. Everyone who went there was so, self- there are no resources here. It's hard for people to believe, but, you know, you have to drive... 40 miles to a grocery store and, and of course winter's coming so everyone who came, came fully prepared. There was a book drive, you know, and they got so many books from authors and publishers that they had no way of, of assimilating their their library. But can
1: that movement be built upon? Can it expand?
0: Well, I think for the, it affected tens of thousands of people directly. You know who went there because at any one time there were ten to twenty thousand people there, but hundreds of thousands, and all. Some people visited for a day or two or three. Everyone, you know, came back and they formed local groups. The, the a lot of the stuff is in the courts now, so they do demonstrations in front of courts and all. But I think more than anything, once it becomes clear that there's Indian land and Indian people out there still to people, it becomes real, and they've met these people, they've they've hugged them, they've shared hands with them, they've shared food with them. It, it transforms people because they can't unknow what they know once they're taught, and they learned a lot of things there, just as I was talking about how I learned. I had so many experiences like that where It's accelerated your learning process, you know, because once your mind is open to it, it's just endless and you can't really go back. So I think that's the most important thing in the long term as we form a future movement and a future vision of what the future might be like.
1: You were just listening to Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, an indigenous people's history. She spoke in Santa Fe in 2017. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz is a distinguished scholar and activist. She's the author of An Indigenous People's History of the United States, winner of the American Book Award. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and supported solely by individuals just like you. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, alternativeradio.org. To get a CD of this program featuring Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz and for her book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, just give us a call at one 800 Again, one 800 Our website where we're podcasting, alternativeradio. Dot O-R-G. We're offering MP3s, PDFs, and written transcripts of this program free of charge. Special thanks to the Lennon Foundation. Joe Richie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with John Trudell, Blue Indians. Stranded persons search for meaning. Story keepers run out of bandages. Histories washed in ritual blood. Traditions bleed in high-tech flood. Workers not serfs.
0: Terminologies change. Progress as evolution. Terminals strange. Blue Indians being pulled into
1: melting pots. Grueling class rules the haves and have-nots. Industrial reservation tyranny stakes its claim. Blue Indians emotional siege in civilized state. website alternativeradio.org alternativeradio.org uh, we too are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations uh, purchase transcripts mp3s or cds of our programs so we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there
0: hello hello what is it cjsw This is CrispinGlover.com. You are listening to CJSW
1: 90.9 FM. Thank you. Thank you. One more. Thank you.